for me to talk to people. I can't. I'm the kind of a person, even today, a little bit. Uh, when I'm having a conversation with you, while you're talking, it's hard for me to concentrate on what you're saying because I'm thinking about what I'm going to say when you pause. And it's hard to have any kind of meaningful, you know, exchange of ideas like that. And I've always uh, thought of myself as a shy person. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you told me that's another word for self-obsession. I like shy better, but uh, <laughs> self-obsessed is what I am. I think of myself all the time. When I'm in a group of people, I wonder how I look to you or how I sound to you or, or you know, everything revolves around me and my feelings. And so I was at that party that night when I was 13, and they were drinking rum and coke, so I drank rum and coke. And I drank enough to get me drunk and then some, and that's the way I have always drank. Uh, I uh, blacked out that night and passed out and woke up the next morning in bed with a Marine that I didn't know. That's not what I meant to do, you know. Uh, I was 13 years old and I uh, had good moral values and I meant to, uh, you know, I always meant to be the kind of a person that would grow up and, and get married and stay married once and, and uh, you know, go to the PTA and just be a regular person. And I'm 13 years old and I've gone to bed with this guy I don't even know and I felt bad the next day. You know, I felt shame and guilt and remorse and I was terrified that I was going to get pregnant. and. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, uh, you know, the next day I was talking to my two girlfriends that were at that same party, and they knew how my evening had ended up. And it seemed to me that next day that these two girls, who were also 13, it seemed to me that these girls were looking at me with awe and admiration the next day. Now, I don't know if that's what they were feeling or not, but that's what I thought they were thinking. And I liked that. I liked the idea that these girls were somehow sort of looking up to me. And, and I'll tell you what, the, the idea, the delusion, let's call it, that... Uh, that people were looking up to me with awe and admiration followed me all the way to Alcoholics Anonymous. I often thought that people were looking at me that way. People looking back on it, uh, and after an inventory, uh, I can see that people often probably were looking, but I doubt seriously whether it was ever with the <laughs> shock and dismay are probably words that were better described. Um, you know, I drank the next chan very next chance I got after that first time, and uh, I, I believe if I would have had access to alcohol, alcohol every day from that moment, I would have drank it every day. I loved what it did for me. The part of the night that I could remember um, from that first night, I loved. I remembered uh, taking that, I don't know if it was the first one or the second one, but whatever, at some point that drink hit, you know, where it hits, and, uh, and I could talk to you, and I was real comfortable, and I could uh, say things that made people laugh, and I could dance. Um, I don't know if I could dance, but I felt like I could dance, okay? And I felt real relaxed and graceful, and, uh, and it was clear that alcohol did that, and so I drank every chance I got. Uh, I was a periodic for a while. I was 13, 14, 15 years old. I, you know, I couldn't get it. If I could have had it every day, I know I would have drank it. I, uh, you know, up until the time I was 13, I was an A student, and, uh, and I went to uh, church, and I went to, was involved in church youth group activities, and, uh, and I was just this sort of good kid, you know, uh, from the very day that, that I drank that first time, my life changed. I didn't see that. I didn't see any of this, by the way, any insight I have into my life. I got here long after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I, but I can see now that, you know, the very day that I took that first drink, my life changed. Uh, pretty soon, before you know it, I'm getting C's and D's in school, and I'm hanging around with this sort of bad crowd of kids. Sort of. I'm hanging around with this bad crowd of kids. Um, I'm... Uh, you know, my parents are dismayed. They don't know what's going on. Uh, they know something's wrong. They don't know I'm drinking. They just know something's wrong. Uh, I, uh, I found out right away how to get a phony ID. I mean, it's like a joke. When I was 13, I looked about nine, you know, and, I, and I've got a phony ID that says I'm 21. <laughs> and I found the one. I grew up in Newport Beach in California, and I found the one um, bar in Newport that would sell uh, 
beer out the back door to miners, and I don't remember ever asking anybody, do you know where you can buy beer? You know, but somehow I became possessed of this knowledge. Somehow I learned how to get a phony ID. Somehow, you know, this stuff just came to me. Uh, somehow that year uh, I changed friends. You know, and I don't remember thinking I'm going to discard this group of uh, church friends and, and go over here and hang out with, with these people, but that's what happened, you know. Uh, in, in the course of that year, my life just changed totally. Uh, my parents were a little concerned. They, they sent me away to boarding school. They thought that, uh, they didn't, I don't know what they thought. They thought that, I guess that if they got me away from boys, that maybe that would, um, they thought there was a distraction there. There was. Um, it, the, the two always went drinking and boys and then men kind of always went hand in hand for me. You know, I, uh, I've always felt so inadequate. You know, I've always had so little self-worth that if you showed a little bit of attention to me, um, I love you. That's all there is to it. You know, if you just even act interested in me, I suddenly, I can, you know, I can go to school every day with a guy, with a boy, and, uh, and never notice him other than to say hello to. But if he appears interested in me, I suddenly realize what a charming fellow he is and how many fine qualities he has and how could I have missed all of this. And uh, <laughs> I never once um, went after anybody or, or showed any interest. You know, if I saw somebody I thought was cute or, or that I might be interested in, I, I never pursued that because I never had enough self-worth to do that, you know. Um, Never until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, anyway, I went away to boarding school, and I, um, my grades went up because there wasn't much to do there. It was real hard to get alcohol, and, and, uh, and I studied a lot, and I, uh, I brought my grades up. I came home every weekend and, and, um, and drank and partied, but I was there just enough to, you know, that my grades did improve, and I uh, graduated okay. I met a fella, um, my first husband. Um, while I was still in high school, I was at, at that time there was a place in Newport Beach called the Rendezvous Ballroom. It's since been torn down. Uh, and they had, uh, it, when I was growing up, surfing music was the big deal, and uh, I think I've dated myself with that. But anyhow, uh, they had uh, this, you know, big surfer bands would appear down there, and, and uh, you couldn't drink in there. But everybody, the big thing was you would go down, and you'd sit in the parking lot, and you'd drink beer until you just gag in the car. And then you'd go in, and you'd get your hand stamped. You know, you'd go in in the music, and you'd dance, and you'd go out and show your hand, you know, to get back in and, and drink in the parking lot. And, go back. And, and mostly everybody acted drunker than they were, you know. Uh, except me. I got drunk all the time, and I always did um, strange things in the parking lot with these guys. And Newport Beach was kind of a small town, and I was getting kind of a bad reputation, and, uh, and it bothered me. Uh, I met this guy in, in the rendezvous one night, and uh, he was from a neighboring town, and he didn't really know me or any of my friends, and, and he thought I was kind of charming. And, uh, and we started going out, and, and I was going out with a couple other fellas, and, and one night this, this guy that I had met from this other town asked me to marry him. Now, I was, I think, 18 when he asked me to marry him, and I was not unattractive, and I, I was, you know, I had my share of boyfriends and all, but, but I had so little self-worth that I, I guess I thought nobody would ever want me, and when he asked me to marry him, I, I remember feeling this tremendous sense of relief. It was like, thank God, you know, I don't have to think about that anymore, and, and I said yes, and, uh, and I knew that I did not love this guy. I mean, I, there, in fact, I kind of liked one of these other guys a little better, but again, I didn't have... Um, whatever it took to, you know, to pursue that. I just, he wants to marry me, great. And so we planned this big church wedding, and, um, and, uh, and I knew, you know, as the plans were going along that, that this, it just wasn't quite right. I've always been a big reader, excuse me, and in the, uh, I had Mexican food for lunch. Um, in, the, in books, brides-to-be feel a certain way, and I did not feel that way. I could not have told you exactly what it was I was feeling. I just knew that something was not quite right here, you know? But, and I remember thinking I ought to, uh, I shouldn't do this. You know, I really shouldn't um, go through with this. But I was um, kind of powerless to stop it. One night, uh, 
for some reason I went to a party one night during that engagement with with a girlfriend uh, and he wasn't there for some reason and I I met a fellow and I went to bed with this guy and I and it occurred to me the next morning I really should not get married uh, this is clearly not the thing I ought to be doing and I so I said to my fiance that that next night I said you know maybe we um, should wait my parents had been trying to get us to, to wait till we were a little older I said maybe my parents are right maybe we should uh, postpone the wedding date for a little while and uh, and not rush into this thing and and he started to cry and it made me feel so bad I said okay all right we'll get married never mind and that's why I married my first husband uh, you know I think I would have stayed married to him forever or at least until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous for that same reason I think I call that people pleasing today I, I couldn't stand to hurt his feelings and I it is inconceivable that I could have ever gone home now we're married and and, and it's inconceivable that I could ever go home and say look I don't love you I'm leaving or you've got to leave I mean I I can't do that. Uh, I just can't do it. So we're married, and, and we don't fight or anything. We just don't talk much. I mean, we don't have anything in common. He goes to work, I go to work, and, and we have dinner, and we sometimes play cards with friends. And we didn't, I didn't drink too much. We were married six months. I didn't drink too much during that marriage because we didn't have much money. Um, the one thing that we did drink, all our friends were young married couples like us that didn't have much money, and, and the big drink then was um, just a hideous thing. We used to take perfectly good wine and mix it with 7-Up, I can't even imagine why we would do such a thing. <laughs> I guess to make the wine go further, but, uh, you know, all I did was you went to the bathroom a lot and you never really got drunk. Uh, you know, so, so I didn't drink too much. Uh, during the time, during the six-month period that we were married, uh, my, my only brother, uh, I, it was just my brother and I growing up, my only brother uh, was killed in sort of a tragic accident in the service. And I felt real, real bad about that. And I felt real bad for a reason that I couldn't even tell anybody. He was in the, very briefly, I'll, I'll tell you, he was in the Navy and... And uh, his ship was in Japan, and a boiler blew up on the ship, and he was very badly injured. And uh, my parents got telegrams from the whoever sends them, the Navy Department or whoever does that, and saying that he was very badly injured, but it, they were going to do surgeries and so on. It looked like maybe he'd be okay. And, and so we were sending um, cards and letters over to him, you know, to encourage him in his recovery. And, uh, and one day I bought this card, one of these studio <laughs> funny cards, you know, and on the front it said something like, um, heard you were ailing but not to worry, and you opened it up, and on the inside it said, only the good die young. Now when I bought that card, it seemed real funny and clever, and I, I wrote something on it, and I sent it off. And a couple of days later we found out that he died. And I felt so bad, you know, I felt so guilty for having sent such a sen senseless card. And I remember it took about, uh, I don't know, two or three weeks, I think, for his belongings and his body to be shipped back to my family. I remember during that, that whole time just crying a lot, just, just saying to God, please, God, don't let that card have got there. You know, let, it, let him have died before he opened that card. And as things came back, and my mother was, opened up the trunk, and there was that card laying on top, and it had been opened, and I just wanted to die. I snuck that card out of there before anybody saw it, and I can still remember standing in the bathroom and ripping it up in little pieces and flushing it down the toilet and feeling so ashamed that I would have done something so stupid. You know, it's not really a big deal, and yet at the time it was a huge deal, and I couldn't... Um, I just couldn't tell anyone that I had done it. I don't know why. I just couldn't. Uh, I didn't tell anybody about that until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, which was, you know, 20, 20 over 20 years later. You know, I just, uh, I just couldn't tell anybody about it. I, um, I'm crying all the time now. My brother's dead, and I'm crying, and I can't, I cannot pull myself together. You know, I just can't, can't seem to get together here. And my husband is this young guy. He doesn't know what to do, you know. And he said to me one day, I don't know how to help you here. Maybe you better go stay with your mother for a while. Maybe she can help you get over this. And, and so I said, okay. That, I mean, I didn't know what to do either. And so I went home and, uh, to stay with my mother for a while, and I never went back. See, I can do that. I didn't have to look him in the eye and say, 
I don't love you, I'm not coming back. I went to my mother's and I called him one day and I said, you know, I don't think our marriage is working out, I'm not going to come, come back. I just can't look people in the eye and do confrontations very well. You know, if there's a back door to leave by, I'll leave by it every time. And, and that's basically what I did with that marriage. He called me and he called my mother and my father and, he, and my, the minister of my church who had married us and he wanted to, you know, work out some kind of counseling or something and I just couldn't, um, I wanted no part of it. Um, to get a little ahead of myself, uh, years later after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I hadn't, didn't see him for many, many years, and after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd been sober a few months, and I ran into him one day, and uh, I hadn't seen him in all that time, and, and, uh, and it occurred to me, this is an opportunity to make, make some amends to this man. And then my next immediate thought was, well, no, I'm much too new on the program, and I'm not even really to that step yet, and so... Um, <laughs> I better not do that, you know, uh, and I haven't seen him since then, and now I don't know how to find him, and I, I regret very much that I let that opportunity pass by. If you're, you know, if, if you run into somebody, just do it. <laughs> That'd be my strong recommendation. I hope that I do run into him again someday so I can do that. I've tried to find him, and I, I just don't know where he is. Anyway, um, I stayed with my folks for a while after that marriage broke up and sort of got my financial act together, and then I moved to Los Angeles, and and I remember moving into this first little apartment I had in L.A. I felt so grown up and sophisticated. And, and I remember thinking, now I can be the person I was meant to be. Because now for the first time, really, I was on my own without anybody looking over my shoulder, so to speak. And uh, apparently the person I was meant to be was a daily drunk because that's what I became from the very first day. Uh, my first job in L.A. was for a trucking company. And, uh, God, I love that job. I worked, uh, I worked there for a year, and I drank in the bars where these truck drivers drank. There were about four or five of them that we rotated amongst, and uh, I love those bars. One time I was uh, making a talk in, uh, near home, and I uh, mentioned the name of one of these bars, and, and a guy in the meeting came up to me afterwards, and he said, I can't believe you drank in that bar. He said, I drank there for years, and I never once saw a woman in that bar. And uh, I love that bar. You know, I love that bar. Um, that's why I loved it. You know, when I was in that bar, I felt real special. You know, I really did. Um, I was trouble. I wasn't 21 yet, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm just trouble. Wherever I go and I'm drinking, there's trouble, and I'd periodically get 86 from one of these bars, and I just thought it was all cute, and we'd all laugh about it and go to one of the other ones for a while until the heat was off over there, you know, and, and uh, I'm in blackouts most of the time when I'm drinking, but I think that's kind of, you know, when you're, when you're 19 and 20, it's, I just thought I was the most precious thing. I really did, you know, and, and you'd tell me these things that I'd done the night before, and I'd laugh and, and get drunk again, and it was just no big deal, you know most of the time. Um, the problem with that is you can't stay drunk all the time, you know, if only you could. Um, you know, I'd, uh, I'd go to work at that trucking company in the morning and I'd be sober, you know, and I'd... Uh, one day I was sitting at my desk. My desk was in... I was a secretary. My desk was in the warehouse building and my typewriter was like here and, and to the side here was sort of a picture window that looked out onto the loading dock of this where these trucks would back up and, and load. And uh, I was sitting there at my desk, and I and I looked over there out of the corner of my eye. I could see four or five of these truck drivers over there, uh, whom I had known in the biblical sense, you might say, <laughs> standing there staring at me and, and uh, talking and laughing. And I knew they were talking about me, and it was humiliating. You know, it's 10 o'clock, 10.30 in the morning, and I haven't had a drink yet today, and that's humiliating. Um, I went to the bar with them that night, and I took one of them home with me that night, you know, and I did it for quite a few more nights. But eventually I left that company because I just couldn't, could not go in there one more day and face those guys when I wasn't drunk. Um, now, if you had asked me, Pat, why are you changing jobs? That is not what I would have told you. I, because, I, you know, if I, have, if I really look at that closely, it might imply that I'm going to have to do something about my drinking, I guess. 
So I never really looked too close at that. If you'd asked me why are you changing jobs, I would have said to you, I'm changing jobs because I don't think there's any room for advancement at this firm. I think there's a lot more opportunity over here. You know, I'm a real good secretary and I never had any trouble getting a job. And so um, it was real easy to believe that. And, uh, and I could keep a job just about a year. You know, I'd get the job and I'd work real hard. I think alcoholics do work ten times harder than anybody else when they're working. And uh, key phrase there. And, uh, and so I'd work real hard, and, uh, and uh, eventually, you know, a couple months or something would go by, and the boss would say, you're doing a good job there, Pat, or he'd give me a little raise or something, and, and I'd relax, you know. And then I'd be drinking with uh, my coworkers and the boss and the clients or all of them, and, you know, bad things would happen. Just bad things would eventually happen. Eventually it would get to where I couldn't go in there. I, I have never done anything remotely connected with social drinking, ever. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of a drunk who once quit a job after an office Christmas party without even going in to clean out my desk because I knew I couldn't face those people the next day. Uh, one time I was out with, um, this was the start of my showbiz career. One night I was out with uh, some of my coworkers and one of the bosses and we had been bar hopping that night and everybody was pretty drunk but I of course was drunker than most and we wound up in a strip joint in downtown LA and um, we were all there. Uh, drinking and, you know, laughing at the girls, and uh, it wasn't a very high class, well, I mean, none of them are, but <laughs> this was especially not, and uh, the girls, as I recall, were like my age now, okay, and, um, and so we're all kind of drunk there and talking and laughing, and I got up to go to the ladies, I remember getting up to go to the ladies' room, which was sort of backstage, and, uh, and I vaguely remember bumping into the owner of this bar and having a chat with him in the hallway. I do not remember actually taking my clothes off and putting this costume on, but I do remember then coming out on stage, dancing, and, uh, and my coworkers and everybody down here going, oh my God, it's, you know, it's, it's bad enough. And it seemed like it's another one of those things at the very moment that it was happening, I'm drunk, it seems like what a great thing to be doing. You know? uh, the next morning at work, in the office, it did not seem like such a great thing to be doing. I started, it occurred to me, I had a keen mind, I owed a little bit of money at that time and to my parents, as a matter of fact, and, uh, and I thought, what a great idea this is, I could um, work my day job, which sort of took care of my bills, and I could do this at night and make some extra money and pay them, they would have just been thrilled to know that this is how I'm going to pay them back, right? And uh, make some money and pay them back in, in short order, and then once I've got them paid back, I could buy some clothes or something, this is a great idea. So I, I started doing that. I went down and got a little job in a um, in a uh, a go-go place. Go-go dancing was the, really the hot thing then. And uh, at the time, there were actually some very nice go-go dancer places in Los Angeles. I never worked in one of them. Uh, <laughs> I worked in places that were called things like Nick's and Joe's. You know, <laughs> uh, the first place I worked was in um, East Los Angeles, which uh, you know, if you know LA, it's not a great place to work. And uh, I'm there and I'm working and, and a guy came in there one night and he said, what is a nice girl like you doing in a, you know, in a terrible place like this? And I said, well, you know, showbiz. And he said, well, why don't you come with me? I'll take you to a nice place. And, and uh, you know, this is a terrible dive. And so I said, okay. And so he took me over to Chinatown to uh, <laughs> what we both considered a much nicer place. And I got a job there. And, and uh, you know, I, it just all seemed real exciting and, and fun. I, you know, and meanwhile, I'm changing jobs every year, you know, for my secretarial job because I can't hang on to any of those. I never got fired from a job, and, uh, and I, I kind of held on to that idea for a long time after I was in AA. I realized um, considerably after, after I'd been in AA for a considerable period of time that every job I ever had, I quit because of my drinking. 
I didn't see that at the time, but it's pretty clear. Anyhow, I'm working this, this day job, and I'm working at night in this uh, go-go place, and I'm in there one night, and I hear somebody say, oh, my God, that's Pat. And I look down, and there's a bunch of my coworkers again. And they, and they, you know, they can't believe it. I'm this, during the day, now I'm living like this double life, you know, and I'm kind of hung over during the days. I'm getting a little bit older, and I'm not bouncing back quite so fast in the mornings. And so I'm real quiet at work, you know, because I feel kind of bad. And, and so I I get up in the morning, and I'd go to work, and I'd be dressed kind of, you know, like I am now, to, you know, like a person. And, and um <laughs> And I'd just be quiet at my desk, and I'd do my work, and I wouldn't bother anybody. And, and, um, and I'd get off work at 5 o'clock, and I'd go down to Chinatown, and I'd uh, take off my clothes. And I'd Now, you know, I mentioned before, I'm this shy person. There's no way I can get up and dance in front of you almost naked. And so, naturally, I have to drink before I do that. Uh, it's a fine line. I worked, the, the place that I worked the longest, I worked from 6 at night until 2 in the morning. That's a long time to try to maintain... You know, just that right level of drunkenness to be able to do it but not actually be passed out. Um, often I overshot the mark. <laughs> More than once I passed out on stage. It is fortunate for everyone concerned that it was the kind of place that really didn't matter. They would just sort of drag you off and... <laughs> true. Another girl would come on and take your place until you could get it together in the back room, you know. Uh, I... Um, met my second husband in one of these places I was working and uh, we started going out and uh, event we said you know we started living together and then eventually got married and and uh, I don't really know why I married him I he asked I guess you know uh, <laughs> I uh, I liked him a lot. I think, see, what was happening to me, just about the time I met him, things were getting worse out there for me. You know, I was um, starting to get arrested, and uh, I didn't care for that at all. And, uh, and the people, I mean, I had always, um, you know, drinking and men just kind of all, have always gone together, but the, it was getting stranger, let's put it that way. You know, the, the men were getting stranger, and the circumstances were getting a little scarier, and... Uh, I mean, I had gone through like what I call my mariachi phase. I, I uh, discovered this mariachi band. They were all about, I was, I don't know, my early 20s. They were all about 55 or so. There were about eight or ten of them in this band. None of them spoke English. They, uh, they played in this little uh, cantina in uh, San Juan Capistrano, which was about 60 or 70 miles from where I was living. Uh, they played there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. And they would stay in a little local motel there, and then they, on Sunday night they would go home to Tijuana, I guess, to their wives and many children. Uh, and then they'd come back on Thursdays, and for maybe a year, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, I would drive the 60 or 70 miles down there and, uh, and go to this place. Uh, I, I recently was talking and, and making a talk, AA talk in that town, and I had a little time. I got there a little early, and I had a little time to kill, so I drove through there to see if I could find this place, and I found it. It's called something else now but it looks pretty much the same as it did then. And I, it, was, it was dark when I drove by the other day, and I, I pulled up across the street, and I sat there in my car, and I, I just could see in the door, right, right just into that door to that bar stool where I used to sit. You know, I couldn't come up with one happy memory, not one. I couldn't remember one good moment ever out of that place, and yet I went there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night for a long, long time. That's alcoholism, I guess, you know. That's what it did for me. Uh, I would go to this place, and I thought these mariachi players were just the most wonderful. They could have been the Rolling Stones for all, you know, they were wonderful. To, I thought they were fabulous. I would um, sit there and get drunk, and, and uh, at some point one of them would ask me to dance, put his instrument down, you know, and ask me to dance, and I would feel that old thing, you know, that special thing, like these people must be looking at me and the other patrons of the bar, you know, and, 
and thinking that I'm somebody special here because these guys know me. Well, they knew me. <laughs> all of them knew me, you know. Uh, and uh, there was just nothing good about that at all. Uh, I don't remember why I stopped going there. I don't remember anything happening, uh, you know, worse than <laughs> what normally happened. I just uh, eventually stopped going there and stopped doing that. And, uh, and meanwhile, then I'd met this husband-to-be, and, and, uh, and as I said, I'd started getting arrested. And, and, uh, and so I started drinking at home. I married this man, and, and I started drinking at home. And, uh, and I remember thinking, I have this drinking problem under control here now. Uh, see, I was given a, quite a bit of thought already. I'm maybe 20 years old, and uh, maybe, yeah, about 20, I guess. And, uh, and I think I have my drinking problem under control now. You know, when you sit in a rocking chair in your living room and drink every night until you pass out, not a whole lot happens. Uh, but I thought I had my drinking problem under control. I, uh, he was a compulsive gambler, which sort of really is a perfect marriage, uh, an alcoholic and a compulsive gambler. His um, friends were all gamblers also, and they thought that we had the perfect marriage. They, uh, they liked to go to the track every night, and, and his friends were married, you know, and their wives wanted them to come home once in a while at night and play with the kids and take, take them to dinner and, you know, do stuff, family stuff. And, uh, and I didn't care by then. I, I preferred it when he was gone at the track because, then, you know, when he was there, I felt this obligation to leave the bottle in the kitchen, you know. And I would then have to, you know, I would go in and I'd have a quick one out of the bottle and then I'd mix a drink with ice, you know, and then I'd carry it out and sit in the living room and, and drink that drink and then, you know, try to, and then go back and have a quick one while he's not looking and then mix it. It's just a lot of work is what it is, you know. When he wasn't there, when he was at the track, I could just take that bottle and put it by the table, you know, by that rocking chair where I sat. And it was just a lot easier. I never had to get out of that chair. And uh, so I preferred it when he was gone. So his friends were all saying, God, you are so lucky. you got this great wife. And, uh. And so there we were in wedded bliss. <laughs> I, um, I knew my life was going nowhere. I hated myself. I, I had no hope that it would ever change. I had no idea that, that my life could ever change. I, uh, it occurred to me that maybe if I didn't drink, I'm a bright woman, maybe if I don't drink, uh, things could get better for me. Uh, I'm not ready to call myself an alcoholic, but, but clearly I, I don't seem to be drinking the way other people do, and maybe if I don't drink, things could get better. By God, I always had these thoughts when I'm drunk, you know, this, how it's going to be tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm not going to drink, and uh, I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to do something with my life. I just can't do this. You know, I was in my 20s, and, uh, you know, I never really um, seriously thought about suicide, I guess because of whatever religious training I had as a kid. But I used to sit in that rocking chair and, and think about the fact that I was 20, whatever I was at the time, and, and that... Uh, and I was in reasonably good physical health. You know, I could live another 60 or 70 years sitting in that chair. And the thought was terrifying, you know, and I just didn't know that I could ever get out of that chair. I would get up the next morning, and uh, now, I'm, as I say, I'm getting a little older, and I'm not bouncing back quite so fast in the morning. So I've got these hangovers, and, and, uh, and I thought, okay, today's going to be the day. I'm not going to drink today, and uh, I'm going to get my life together, and I'm going to start doing some physical exercise, too, and I'm just really, it's going to be a whole new me. And I go off to work, and... And I meant it, you know, I really meant it. The problem is I'm an alcoholic, and I get home from work at 5, assuming that I made it through lunch without drinking, I'd get home from work at 5 o'clock, and there'd be a half a fifth of scotch sitting up there on the kitchen sink. And I would think to myself, well, it's going to be hard to quit with this open bottle sitting here. What I'll do is I'll drink this down, and tomorrow when there's nothing in the house, I'll quit. That makes a lot of sense to me. I'm sure it does to you, too. And... Uh, <coughs> The problem is I'm an alcoholic, and I would start drinking on that bottle, and before it was done, I'd have to call the liquor store to deliver a new one. And uh, they would, and the next day what I'd have, there would be more or less a half a fifth of scotch. 
And I didn't do that once. I did that a lot. And I meant it every time. Tomorrow when there's nothing here, it'll be easier to quit, and I'll quit then. Um, this liquor store, I was not one of those people who, who, you know, drove around to 47 different liquor stores lest anybody should know how much you're drinking. You know, I, uh, I dealt with bottle and keg liquor on Pico Boulevard because they delivered. And uh, the last few years of my drinking, I would come home from work, and I knew exactly the amount of the check. I knew it. In fact, I was about six years sober. I could remember the amount. I don't remember it anymore. But uh, I knew the amount of the check for the fifth of scotch, two packs of cigarettes, and a tip for the delivery guy. It was, you know, it was the same amount every time. And I would come home from work, and I would write the check out, and I'd just have it there by the door. I wasn't necessarily calling in the liquor store yet, but, but I'd have it there. So when I did call, because I knew that sometimes by the time, you know, I was generally okay when I called, but the lag time between when I called and when they actually showed up could sometimes be a problem. And, uh, and, so, uh, and I didn't always know if I could write the check. I was such a good customer of that store that sometimes when they came to deliver, I'd already passed out, and they'd knock and knock and knock on the door, and you know, nobody would answer, and they would leave it. They'd leave it on my porch because they knew I'd be down in the morning to pay it, and I was. My rent was often not paid on time. My utilities from time to time would get turned off, but I always would go down the next morning and write that check to the liquor store. You know, I always took care of that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was sober, I think, two years, and, uh, you know, liquor stores don't like to cash checks. I was sober about two years, and my husband went to jail, and I went down. It was about 11 o'clock at night, and I went down. This is before the days of instant tellers, you know, and I went down and didn't know how I was going to get this cash, and I went down to this liquor store. I had not had a drink in two years, and I said, would you cash a check for $300? And they said, you bet. You know, they remembered me. <laughs> uh, I was a very good customer. Uh, I uh, sat in that rocking chair one hot summer day. It must have been a, maybe a weekend or a holiday because it, uh, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning. I was drunk already, and it was hot. It was about 100 degrees. I was wearing that purple flannel bathrobe that I wore all the time when I drank. And Sitting in the chair where I sat in my living room, I could see the neighbors uh, down into the neighbor's front yard. We lived on the second floor. and uh, The neighbors were a young couple about my age, which was maybe late 20s at that time, and uh, they had two little kids, and uh, that day, the, that morning, the kids were playing in the sprinklers on the front lawn, and the parents were sitting up on the porch steps talking and laughing and drinking coffee or something, and, uh, you know, I sat up there in my apartment in that flannel bathrobe drunk, and I watched those people, and I cried because I wanted what they had. You know, I knew that day I couldn't live like that. I knew that if God came along and said, here you are, Pat, it's yours, the good life, you know, I knew I couldn't do it. I knew that I could not um, live without drinking. And I had absolutely no hope. I cried that day watching those people, and I had absolutely no hope. I do not know how long it was from that day until the day I called Alcoholics Anonymous. As near as I can pinpoint it, somewhere between three months and three years. Uh, <laughs> I'm drinking blackouts a lot. Uh, but one night I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I have no idea what triggered the notion to call that night. Uh, I had heard about alcoholics, and I think I'd read about it. You know, as I mentioned, I'm a big reader, and I, I'm sure that I had read about it somewhere, but I have no idea what triggered the idea that particular night. But I picked up the phone, and I asked information for the number, and I called. And um, a nice man answered the phone, and he asked me if I was having a problem with alcohol. And I allowed that I was, and I started to cry. And he uh, told me a lot about himself, actually a lot more than I was interested to know, if the truth would be told. Um, I kind of, I was drunk, you know, I kind of wanted to talk, but uh, he went on and on about himself, and uh, he, uh, he, I remember he wanted to send some women over to my house. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot think of a worse idea. Why would I want some women to come to my house? I, I think I said something like, no, I don't think I'm that bad, and he said, um, 
well, okay. He said, do you think, it was a Friday when I called. He said, do you think that you could not take a drink tomorrow during the day and go to a meeting that I'll tell you about that's not too far from your house tomorrow night at 8, <clears throat> excuse me, at 8.30? And I said, yeah, I thought I could do that. And so he told me where our meeting was. Now, the next morning I woke up, and uh, first of all, I remembered making the call, which was <laughs> an amazing thing in itself. And I remember just enough of it, you know, just enough of what that guy had said to uh, to be kind of interested in going. I, it didn't seem like quite such a good idea the next morning, but I, I couldn't get it out of my mind all day. It was just sort of right there in the back of my mind, you know. And that night I found myself saying to my husband, I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, he was underwhelmed at best. We were not getting along. We hadn't been speaking cordially <laughs> in quite a while. And uh, I don't really think that when I left the house that night that I don't think he cared whether I lived or died. I really don't. And I, I didn't really care whether he did or not either. Um, I drove to that meeting. I had no idea what to expect. I, driving there, I wasn't really sure I was going to go in. Now it's 8. I get to the place and it's 8.20 at night and uh, I haven't had a drink all day. I mean, I'm, I got class. I'm not going to drink before I go to an AA meeting. I know, you know. And so I haven't had a drink, but I need one bad. I mean, I need one real bad. I'm sick and I'm shaking and sweat is pouring off of me. I am not dressed very well and uh, and I know I'm going to burst into tears any minute. I just stink to high heaven, you know. And uh, I walked in this meeting and a man came up with me and asked me if I was new. And I remember thinking, how did he know that? <laughs> I mean, there were 600 people at this meeting. How did he know that, you know? How loud that I was. He um, introduced me to some women, and they got me a big book and a, and a seat, and the meeting started, and a, a man by the name of Norm A. talked that night, and he made me laugh, you know, when he was talking, uh, I felt sort of okay for the first time in a long time, you know, I did not know what was happening that night, I didn't know that I was laughing, laughter of identification, I just knew that, that everything seemed kind of all right while he was talking, the minute he stopped talking, it went right away. But, uh, you know, I took that big book home. Now, I also got a lot of phone, a handful of phone numbers from these women that night. And uh, I mean, I didn't even, they just came up and gave them to me. Call me anytime, they said. Can you imagine that? I, took, I thought, this is, these are the nicest people I've ever met. And I took all those numbers home. I didn't call anybody. Um, you were clearly very busy together people. And uh, I was not together. And, and I didn't think you'd want to be bothered. But, uh, but I thought it was very kind that you had done that. I took the big book home, and I read it cover to cover, and I thought it was the most fabulous thing I'd ever read. I thought, this is great. I'm going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous every Saturday night, and I'm going to do this thing. Now, I heard you say go to a lot of meetings, and it seemed to me every Saturday night would be a lot of meetings. And uh, <laughs> like a lot to me. Now, I didn't drink until Friday night. Six days I didn't have a drink after that first meeting. That's amazing. You know, I hadn't been sober six days in a row for... 12 years at least, for sure. And I was impressed. I mean, clearly Alcoholics Anonymous worked, and I didn't feel very good. But, uh, but I didn't drink, you know. And I, and I didn't think about it much during that week. I mean, it's not like I, you know, was white-knuckling. I just didn't drink that week. Except Friday night, I was struck drunk. And I don't know how that happened, you know. It was not my fault. I was, I was just sitting in this bar, minding my own business, drinking a Diet Pepsi. And... The next thing I know, I'm drinking scotch, and I'm thinking, God, how did this happen? And so I went ahead and finished the drunk out, you know. And, uh, and I went back to that Saturday night meeting, and I raised my hand for being under a week again, and I was sure all 600 people were looking at me and thinking what a terrible loser I was, which I was, actually. Um, more women came up and gave me their phone numbers that night. And one of these women said, you know, <clears throat> we have found that this works a little better if you call one of these numbers before you take a drink. And uh, <laughs> I said, okay. 
I drank a couple more times that week, and then, and then I called that woman who had said that to me. And uh, in fact, I called her several times. I had I must have had 50 numbers literally by this time. I called her, and she wasn't in. I called back like five times over the course of a day or two until like I don't know why. You know, I just it had to be her. <laughs> and uh, and I finally got her, and uh, she said, you know, it seems to me you're having a little trouble staying sober. You might do better with a sponsor. I said, okay, would you be my sponsor? And she said, sure. She said, meet me at the meeting tomorrow night, and we'll talk. Get there early, and we'll talk. And that was a Thursday night. I wasn't real hot on going on a Thursday night, but I got this sponsor now. I want to look good, so I went. And um, <laughs> The first thing she did is she took a meeting direct. Well, she did two things. She had me take my big book and write the date, that date in the book. That was my sobriety date. And uh, I wrote that on the inside cover of my book. And she said, now that's it. You just don't drink anymore no matter what. And uh, then she took a meeting directory, and she started circling meetings. And she said, now on Monday night, you'll go here. And on Tuesday night, you'll go here. Wednesday night, you go. I said, wait a minute. I'm a married woman. I, that is ridiculous. I can't do that. And she said, well, maybe you can get sober on less. But this is how I did it. And if you want what I have, this is how you'd have to do it. If you want me to be your sponsor, this is what I would expect you to do. I would never ask you to do more than I have done. But if you want what I have, this is how I got it. Now, I didn't know this woman, but may, I'd have had maybe five minutes of conversation with her, you know. But I remember thinking when she said that, if I, if I say I won't do it, I'm going to lose her. And it made me feel really kind of panicked. And so I said, okay, I'll do it. But I'll tell you what, my husband is not going to like this one bit. <laughs> and I was right. He didn't like it one bit. Uh, I started going off to AA meetings every night, and, um, and he and I started fighting about Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I thought I had the saddest life of anybody who ever set foot through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I really, honest to God, did. You know, I'd come home from work, we'd have dinner, we'd have the fight. I'd get in the car, I would be sobbing hysterically, and I'd drive to the meeting, and I, it's a miracle I was not killed in a car accident on the way to meetings, it really truly is. I'd drive to the meeting sobbing and feeling so sorry for myself, and I'd say to myself in the car, it's not worth it if this is sobriety, you can have it. I can't live like this. It's not worth it. I'll go to their damn meeting tonight because I'm already out of the house, but this is the last one I'm going to. Um, thank God I always went that night, you know, because I, I would get there and I'd hear just the one thing I needed to hear, keep me coming back. And I'll tell you what, it wasn't always necessarily something from the podium. It just seemed like if I got myself to that meeting, no matter what, I would get what I, Sometimes I'd be standing in line for the bathroom and I'd overhear something that, that would give me a little bit of hope. You know, I never knew uh, exactly where it was going to come from, but uh, I kept coming back. I would uh, just tell anybody who would pause even for a moment how sad my life was. You know, I'd, you know how you walk around and you shake hands and you go, hi, how are you? Hi. If you said, hi, how are you? I'd go, well, my husband said, and, you know, I, I would tell you. And, and people would kind of veer off when they'd see me because I was depressing, you know. You know how they t you, people tell their newcomers to stick with the winners? Nobody was suggesting to their newcomers that they hang around with me, you know, because I was not doing well. Uh, I would um, tell you about this, you know, how sad... Now, see, the thing that's going on at home, and this really ticked me off. My husband now is mad at me because I'm coming to AA. He thinks I'm coming here to meet guys. Now, it's true. I cheated on him all the years we were married. I come to AA, and nobody is asking, you know. And that's, first of all, that's humiliating. And secondly, it really annoyed me to be accused of something that I was not at that very moment doing, you know. And, uh, so things are not good. And I'd come in the meetings and I would just tell anybody who would listen and you'd say dumb things to me like, keep coming back. It gets better a day at a time. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm in the middle of one of life's serious problems, I don't find that to be a satisfactory answer, you know? Um, 
I kept coming back. One night I was with the, the most important night of my sobriety, I believe. I was about um, maybe three or four months sober, and I came into the meeting, and a guy, I used to say an old-timer, he had about six months. Uh, and he's also still sober. He said to me, uh, hi, Pat, how are you? And I thought he cared, so I started to tell him what well, you know, my husband said, and I said, and he cut me right off in mid-sentence, and he said, I don't want to listen to that. Why don't you talk to a newcomer? Maybe you'd feel better. And I stood there and I thought, you SOB, why don't you talk to me? I'm a newcomer. Maybe you'd feel better. I hated this man so much. And then he said, and there's one over there. And he pointed to this girl and he, and he stood there looking at me. And I, I thought, if I don't go talk to this girl, he's going to tell my sponsor and she'll fire me. <laughs> and it's important for me to remember that I, uh, the important part about this for me to remember is that motivation does not count because I walked across the floor to that girl and I remember thinking to myself graciously, I don't care if this woman lives or dies. <laughs> I'll go over and shake her hand or this guy's going to tell my sponsor. I was so angry and I walked over and said, hi, my name is Pat. And the girl, graciously of course, you know, and the, the girl who had brought her to the meeting, whom I knew, said, oh, Pat, I'm so glad to see you. This is whatever her name was. And it's her first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've been waiting for you because she had this big fight with her husband about coming to AA and I knew you were the right person to talk to her. <laughs> stood there and I thought, well, there is no answer. I mean, <laughs> clearly Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work. Look at me. Uh, kind of missed the part that I, where I was sober there. You know, I, all I could see was poor me. But then I also thought, you know, how these things run through your mind briefly, quick split seconds. You know, I thought, well, it doesn't work for me, but it seems to be working for some of these other people. And this is this girl's first meeting. I really ought to try to say something positive or encouraging for her, you know. I really should do that. I offhand could not think of anything positive or encouraging. I opened my mouth and I found myself saying, keep coming back, it gets better a day at a time. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, Pat, your nose is going to grow here. I mean, this is bad. I felt like such a hypocrite, but um, now I didn't talk to her very long. You know, I wasn't willing to give her too much. I bet I didn't talk to her more than two minutes, but when I walked away, I wasn't crying. <coughs> You know, what I learned that night is that when I am thinking about you, I cannot simultaneously be thinking about me, and therefore I feel better. It works every time. It worked when I was three months sober and, and felt that I had absolutely nothing to share, and it works today when I'm 12 and a half years sober and still sometimes feel like I don't have much to share. You know, it, it works. Uh, it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous something to the effect that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as working with another alcoholic. And it works. It worked that night when I was three months sober, and it works today. I um, <clears throat> kept coming back. I didn't know what else to do. You know, I started trying to work these steps. Now, I don't know about you, but I read those 12, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I read those 12 steps, and I picked right out the ones I wasn't going to do. <laughs> I knew four and five, eight and nine were the ones I wasn't hot for. Uh, I knew what you wanted in step four. I knew you wanted my secrets. I knew at the very first night, I, my first, in my first meeting when I took the book home, I knew that's what you wanted in that fourth step. And I knew that I, I had a couple. And I knew I never, ever could tell them to anyone. Uh, by the time I was sober a few months, and my sponsor, uh, maybe eight or nine months, I guess, and my sponsor said to me, I think you better start writing your fourth step there. And I said, okay. And I'd been sober long enough to, to figure, you know, there's a lot of other uh, stuff I'm willing to share. I'm just, it's just those couple of things. I just... You know, I'll just write about everything else. She won't know I've left anything out because she doesn't know what those things are. She doesn't even know they exist, you know. So I'll just write about everything else, and, that, and that'll probably be helpful to me, you know. I just can't write about those secrets. And 
The problem is every time I sat down with my paper and pencil, all I could think about were these secrets, you know. I, and uh, finally I thought, well, it may be somehow therapeutic to write these down. I'm certainly never going to read them to anybody, but maybe if I just write them down and get them out of me, that will help me somehow. And so I wrote the secrets down. Once I wrote the secrets down, the rest of it, you know, was fairly easy. And uh, one Thursday night, she said, my sponsor said to me, have you finished that inventory? And I said, yes. And she said, come over to my house Tuesday night and read it. Now, first of all, that's a cruel thing to do. That's, what, four or five days in there? Now, that's, all, of course, all I thought about from Thursday till Tuesday, and I, I was a crazy woman. Um, when I was writing my inventory, I, my big fear was that my husband was going to find it, you know? Um, I mean, I honest, truly believe he would have murdered me if he had found it. There was a lot of stuff in there, and, I, and, I, and so what I would do, I would write on it when he was at the track, and then before he would come home, I would take it in, I would go down to my car, and I would open the trunk and take the tire and, the, you know, the garbage that you keep in there out. And then, you know, there's sort of a rubber thing that's sort of actually stuck to the bottom. I would peel that rubber thing up and I would stick it under there and then sort of smooth that back down and then sort of artfully toss the junk back in, you know, like... And, um, and I thought, well, he'll never find it there. One night I was um, enduring from that Thursday to Tuesday period. Um, he was going to the track. He went out and got in his car, and he had a flat tire, and he came in, and he said, I'm going to be late for the first race. Can I take your car? And I said, oh, sure. And he's halfway down the block before I realized the man is in my car, and the inventory is in the trunk, you know. Now, of course, he has no reason to go in the trunk, take all the stuff out, peel the thing, you know. What does he know? He doesn't even know I'm writing in him. He doesn't know what an inventory is, but um, that was not a good night. I mean, I was just a crazy woman. Um, I knew that I couldn't go read that thing to my sponsor, and I just didn't know what to do. Uh, until it occurred to me that she, again, she doesn't know those secrets are in there. So what I'm going to do when I go over there to read it to her, see, I, I know right where on that page the next thought starts, you know, the thought I am willing to share. I'll just skip over that first couple of paragraphs, and I'll start here, and uh, she will not know I've left anything out because she doesn't know what's in there. And that's how I became willing to drive over to her house that night. I, uh, I got over there, and uh, I sat down on her couch, and I pulled out my notebook, and I sort of pinpointed my starting paragraph there, and the... Uh, I'm ready to roll. And she said, well, now, wait a minute before we get started. Uh, let's get on our knees and say a little prayer. And we got on our knees, and she said something like, Dear God, please help be Pat be honest tonight. <laughs> I went around the next day to my friends on the program, all of whom were doing their inventories at that time. I said, did your sponsor do that? And they all said no. <laughs> as near as I could determine at that time, my sponsor was the only sponsor in the entire history of Alcoholics Anonymous who had ever done that. Uh, I, um, I do it today. <laughs> I'm glad she did. I read the whole thing, you know, I, and it was hard. It was hard to read those words, and I cried when I read them, and, I, and it took me longer to read those first two paragraphs than it did to read all the rest of it, because it was just so hard to say it. But once I had said the words, they were just no big deal, you know. They really were no big deal, and they have never been since. Uh, I... Um, when I draw, I don't know, not sure what I expected to feel after doing my inventory. I, I think, you know, the weight of the world would be lifted off my shoulders or some, you know, bolt of lightning from heaven or something. What I felt uh, driving away from her house that night was real committed to Alcoholics Anonymous. Real, honest to God committed for the first time, you know. I also felt very exposed and I thought, my God, what if she gets drunk? She'll tell all my secrets, you know. As it happened, she did get drunk and she never told my secrets. You know, none of that has ever come back to hurt me. In fact, none of it's secret anymore, so it's no big deal, but uh, <laughs> there you go. I, I didn't, never believed at the time that that could be true. I, um, I just kept coming back and kept trying to work these steps and do the best that I could, and I'm still not a very happy camper around here. You know, I'm crying all the time, and, 
and I just feel so sorry. These fights are still going on at home, and I feel so sorry for myself. And um, I, I changed sponsors, and I, uh, when I was about a year and a half sober, and I got this woman who was sober a long time, and I asked her because I wanted what she had, which was happy, joyous sobriety. You know, I did not have that. I was not drinking, and I was trying to work these steps, but I was not. Um, I was missing. I was not hearing the music somehow. You know, and. Uh, this woman became my sponsor, and the first thing we did is we talked about this marriage, and she said, you know, I've watched you around here for the year and a half you've been here, and it seems to me all you've done is whine and moan and, and complain about this marriage. Why don't you try to um, act like a kind and loving wife? <laughs> what an idea. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I just, uh, you know, I remember we talked about it, and I said, I'm not sure that this marriage can be saved. I think it maybe has just gone too far, and, and, and you know, we're not... We don't like each other very much, and I don't know that it can be saved. And she said, maybe it can't. She said, it may be that someday you're going to have to walk away from it. Wouldn't it be nice if in the meanwhile, a day at a time, you just act, just pretend, act like a kind and loving wife? Maybe if you did that, you could make some amends to this guy. And maybe by doing that, uh, if you have to walk away down the road somewhere, you'd be able to do it without any guilt. Well, now I like the sound of no guilt. <laughs> um, making amends, just to be making amends doesn't appeal much, but... But coming out the other end with no guilt appeals a lot because I had a lot of guilt, you know. Uh, I think I mentioned I had cheated on him a lot, and he didn't know about most of it, you know, but I knew about it, and, uh, and there didn't seem to be any good way to make amends for that. And uh, It was another one of those unsatisfactory answers you'd give me, you know, well, maybe you're just a good wife a day at a time. It doesn't cut it for me, but when she said no guilt, I became willing to try that. Uh, we'd been married eight or nine years, ten years maybe at that time. I assumed I knew a little something about being a wife. I didn't know anything. Nothing. She taught me everything I know. Uh, her first direction, this is real important, treat him with courtesy. It never would have occurred to me to do that, you know. It, honest to God, it never would have occurred to me. Uh, and it was hard. It was real hard. I'd go home from work and I'd, I'd pull up, you know, in the driveway and I'd get out of the car and I'd, I'd say a little prayer, God, please help me be courteous, you know, because it was hard. Because I'd go in there and I'd try to act courteous and, uh, and we'd have the fight, you know, about me going to the meeting. It's hard to act courteous when somebody's saying bad things to you, you know, and... Some days I did it good, and some days I didn't do it so good, but I did the best I could. Uh, another big thing that she had me doing was every day I, <clears throat> when I came home from work, I was to ask him how his day went and listen while he told me. I didn't, uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't much care, you know. Uh, <laughs> my direction was to listen for 10 minutes, and I literally the first time went in and said, how was your day? <laughs> I and I left the room after 10 minutes, and you know, driving to the meeting that night, I... I felt we had a fight that night before I left, but you know, I didn't feel that bad driving to the meeting. I didn't understand why. I, I do today. You know, it's because I was into the solution. You know, I was no longer wallowing around in the problem. I was into the solution. And when I do that, I always feel better, even though the problem may still exist for a long time. You know, I, I am no longer focused on the problem, and I naturally am going to feel better. Um, things went on. You know, this, it always sounds real fast when I'm making a talk, um, but things got better. You know, months went by, and one night I was saying my prayers, and my prayers were not very uh, sophisticated or lengthy. I, uh, in the morning, I would uh, ask God to help keep me sober that day, and uh, that was it. <laughs> and at night, I would uh, thank Him for my sobriety. And that night, I was on my knees, and I was thanking God for my sobriety, and I realized that I was comfortable in that house with that man in that marriage. And it had not happened that afternoon. It had already happened somewhere, and I missed it, you know. I was so busy in the solution, I missed the moment when that happened. And I remember sitting there, uh, kneeling there on my knees and thinking, that's phenomenal. How can that be, you know? But it was. And uh, so that night, I thanked God for, for this good feeling that I had. And, uh, and I said to God, you know, I believe that if this is where you want me to, to stay, if you want me to be married to this man, that that I could stay here and uh, 
stay sober and have a happy and joyous life. Uh, this is not God where I would choose to spend the entire rest of my life. <laughs> but, uh, but I believe if this, if this is what you mean for me to do, that I can do that. And, uh, and I thanked him for that. Not too long after that, we found out that he had cancer. And uh, my first reaction to that, being the selfish person that I am, was uh, I wish this would have happened when I really hated him. You know, Right away, I'm thinking, how is this going to affect me? You know, me, me, me. Um, he was sick for a year and a half, and it was a hard year and a half. No, there's no question it was the hardest year and a half of my sobriety, but it was also, up to that point, the best year and a half of my sobriety. And if you're new, there's just no way I can explain that to you. you just got to believe it. It's true. Uh, it was also the best year of our marriage by a mile, by a mile, uh, because of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it's amazing to me, but, but because I act, pretended, just pretended to be a kind and loving wife, a day at a time there, uh, I had become this kind and loving wife, and uh, I was very grateful that I had stayed. You know, all my best judgment back then told me that uh, the, only g the only thing that will work here is for me to leave this man. I am so glad that I was willing to listen to somebody else and try to do it their way, because I would have missed a lot. You know, I would have missed a tremendous amount. He uh, was sick for a year and a half, and he died, and, and uh, I went down to this little chapel and made funeral arrangements, and uh, the day the funeral came in about two or three hundred people from my home group showed up. And, you know, those people had never met him, you know, and, and it really blew me away, I'll tell you. And I, I was sitting there in the chair, and the place was packed because I hadn't been expecting that many people, you know. And, and I was sitting there, and I realized that day that what my sponsor had promised me was true. I had no guilt. You know, it really worked. It really had worked. And uh, I was very grateful that I, that I had stayed. Um, I, st I used to say that, I, that then, after he died, that I sort of leaped back into the program with both feet. That's not true. I kind of got dragged. You know, during that time he was sick, I, I went to a lot of meetings, but I, I sometimes didn't get to all the meetings that I normally would have because I would be taking him to the hospital or picking him up from the hospital or there would be a crisis at the hospital or what have you. And, and I remember I got very... Um, a girl was just talking to me about this the other night, and I don't, she didn't like my answer any more than I liked it when I got it. But... Uh, I, I had this feeling like I needed to be there all the time with him, you know, and uh, I was at my, one of my home group meetings and somebody came up and asked me to go talk on a panel, the, I don't know, the following Monday night or something, and my husband was in the hospital at that particular time and he was in and out during that whole time of his illness and I, it really ticked me off that this person, I mean, they knew what I was going through and I thought, how could they do this to me? And I said yes because that's what I've been taught to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't say no to an AA request. But I said yes to this person and I went and found my sponsor and I said, do I really have to do that? I mean, it seems to me you know, that with all that's going on, I really ought to be with him. And she said, uh, he's in the hospital, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, and the doctors are taking good care of him? And I said, yeah. And she said, you've been taken and taken and taken from this program. Don't you think it's time you gave some of it back? I thought, how could she be so cruel to me? I'm going through such a terrible thing. How can this woman talk to me like this? It absolutely turned my life around, is what it did. You know, it absolutely made me look at myself. And, uh, and I didn't really like what I saw. And, uh, so anyway, after he died, I... Uh, I started picking up my meetings again. I got on a convention committee that year, and uh, I don't like convention committee. I don't do very well on committees. You know, I, I just don't. I never have, and, I, and it made me nervous. You know, I'd sit in those meetings, and I'd think, we could get this work done in about 10 minutes, and they're taking five hours to do it. It would just make me crazy, and by the time the convention committee meeting would be over, I'd need an AA meeting just to get my head back. You know, it was... But, um, but it was the best thing for me to do that year, you know. I was real busy, and I was running around taking care of my commitment on that committee. It was a big, you know, I had a big job on that convention committee, and, and so there was a lot to do, and, uh, and it's exactly what I needed to do. 
Uh, I started dating a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, here's an interesting thing. I never, ever in my whole life dated a friend before. You know, um, every man I have ever dated or married uh, has been, a, we would meet, we would go to bed, and then we might embark on a relationship or not, as the case may be. And uh, this man, uh, my husband today, we had uh, been friends in Alcoholics Anonymous from the time of my first meeting. He was somebody whose hand I shook in meetings. I heard him share, he heard me share. We'd gone on panels together and, and uh, talked about things. And, uh, you know, if you'd told me when I was new, you're gonna, you know, someday you're going to marry Vince, I would have said, oh, no, that's, don't be silly, that's Vince, he's my friend. You know, uh, <laughs> who would have ever thought? Um, we started dating and we became better friends. And, uh, and uh, we got married uh, a few, several years ago. And we had an AA wedding. This will just make you sick if you're new. Um, <laughs> we got married in the, uh, at the house of a friend on the program. And his sponsor gave me away. And my sponsor was a matron of honor. And an AA lady played the piano and an AA fellow sang. And some AA ladies made food and served it. And, uh, about three or four hundred of our most intimate AA friends were there. <laughs> that was great. It was really great. Um, I remember looking around. That, my mother was there that day, you know, and I, I remember looking around that, that uh, reception and thinking how, how close I felt to everybody that was there that day. And some of the people that were there, I didn't even know their names. They were like n real newcomers whose names I couldn't even think of. And, and, uh, and I felt closer to them even to my own mother. And, and my mother and I have always been close, but... You know, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous know me better than my, than my mother does, and I know you better than I... You know, you are my family, absolutely no question about it. Uh, we had thought, you know, uh, this was my third marriage, it was Vince's fourth, and, and we had thought perhaps we should not have such, quite such a lavish thing, you know. Uh, I mean, it's not like I wore a white dress with a train, but, um, <laughs> you know, maybe we ought to do this a little quieter, and we thought, no, we shouldn't, you know, this really is... Um, it's really a new beginning, you know, and we did it exactly right. I'm, I'm very glad that we got married exactly the way we did. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Uh, we have a real good life today, and, you know, I know the reason that I um, am able to have the kind of relationship with Vince that I have today is because of the things that I learned with my late husband. You know, I'm so grateful that I was willing, against my best judgment, to stay there and learn those things and learn how to be a wife and to do these things. Uh, my other uh, major problem, as I saw it when I got sober... Uh, was my relationship with my stepfather. When I was growing up, there was some stuff going on in my house that shouldn't have been going on, and, and I had a... Well, I hated him, and uh, and I had good reason to hate him, and anybody would agree, you know, I mean, the case closed. And, uh, and I didn't see that as a problem when I first got sober. I mean, that's just the way it was. I was a victim, and, uh, and I hate him, and that's it. I wrote about it in my inventory, and, and I didn't... I thought that's, you know, that's it's a bad thing. I shared it. Okay, that's done. Uh, the problem was, I, after I got, you know, was sober a little while longer, I would think about it more. I mean, it wasn't like a major problem when I got sober. It was, a, it was like a, a problem, you know. And, and now I'm sober a little longer, and it's a bigger problem. And I'm thinking about it more. And like when I call my mother, it's, uh, and if he answers the phone, it's kind of hard to be cordial, you know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it just got to be bigger and bigger. And I talked to, to somebody about it in the, on the program, and they said, well, it's clear what you have to do. And, and I said, what is that? And they said, you have to make amends to him. I said, well, now, wait, apparently you weren't listening to what I just told you. I mean, if anybody needs to make amends here, he ought to be making them to me. I was just a little kid, you know. That's not right. And uh, they said, no, we're not concerned with what he did. You know, we're concerned with your sobriety. And you have this giant resentment. And uh, it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that resentments are going to kill us. 
And you've, you've got to get rid of it. And it appears to me that the only way you're going to get rid of that is by making amends to him. And uh, I just dismissed the idea. I was totally unwilling to even consider such a ridiculous idea. I mean, come on. Except it got bigger and bigger. And finally I went back and said, okay, uh, let's talk. You know, what do you mean, make amends? And and I've been sober for a few years by, by this time. And this uh, person said to me, you know, you um, made amends to your mother uh, for the thing, you know, the things we do to our mothers, the, the grief, the anguish, the worry, you know, all of that. And uh, he was living in that house at the same time you were causing your mother all the grief and the anguish and worry. Why don't you just take that same list of things you made amends to your mother for and make amends to him for, you know, for those same things? There's, there's one very clear problem with that. I love my mother, and I'm sorry that I caused her the grief and the anguish. I don't love this man. I hate him, and I don't care. You know, if he was a little worried, so what is the way I feel about that? But I, um, I didn't want to drink, you know, and I was afraid that if I didn't get rid of this resentment, I might drink. I didn't feel like drinking, but, but it, you know, it's funny when you're going through something like that. It seems like every meeting you go to, that's what they're talking about. Well, that's what was happening, you know. Resentments kill, resentments kill, and God was making me crazy, and so... Uh, I said, okay, I'll go out there. I'll, t- I'll, I'll just go say those same things. I, I don't know what else to do. And now I'm ready to, you know, I'm ready to go roaring out there. And, and I'm, they said, wait a minute. Um, you better go read the, in the 12 and 12 where it talks about some of these difficult amends, you know, where, where they're sometimes bad guys too, you know, that uh, what we have to do is stick to the subject. And you better read that over and over and over again until you're sure you can go out there and just stick to the subject and talk about your amends and not anything that he did. And so I read that over and over and over again for, I don't know, close to a month, I think. And uh, finally felt like maybe I could do it. And I went out there and I said what I had to say and I left. And uh, I came back and I said, you know what, these steps don't work because I feel exactly the same way this minute as I did before I went out there. I said, I made my amend, I said those words, and, and it doesn't work. And I was told I was going to have to do more. And I said, what do you mean more? And uh, I was told I was going to have to do daily living amends like what I did with my late husband. You know, a day at a time, act like a kind and loving daughter to this man. And I really, honest to God, did not think I could do it. I really didn't think I could. And I didn't start for a while. I put it off as long as I possibly could stand the pain. And uh, and then I finally became willing to start it. The first thing that I did in, in that regard was when I would call my mother, if he should answer the phone, instead of saying, let me talk to Mom, I would say, hello, how are you? Let me talk to Mom. And it may not sound like a big deal today, but it was a big major deal the first time I did it, I want to tell you. Uh, Then uh, somebody suggested to me that a kind and loving daughter would probably chat for a moment with him. (laughs) Hideous proposition. I had absolutely nothing in the world I was interested in chatting with this man about, but, uh, but I had to agree that was probably true, so... I would, for a while I had to write down these, I would write them down before I dialed the phone. I called my mother about once a week, and, uh, I, uh would uh, di- write these topics down. I think of them as generic topics, you know. <laughs> Nothing really to do with me. If I'd seen a movie, that was a good topic, you know, that kind of uh, current events, you know. Um, I'd call up. If he answered, I'd, hello, how are you? He'd respond. I'd talk about my first topic. He'd respond. I'd talk about my second topic. He'd respond. And then I'd ask to talk to my mother. And it was hard, but I did it because I just didn't have a better idea, you know. Uh, eventually, it got to where I didn't have to write them down. I could sort of just pause a moment before I dialed the phone and, and come up with a couple of suitable topics, you know, and uh, then Christmas was coming up. The first year I was doing this, Christmas was coming near, and uh, somebody said to me, you know, Pat, um, a kind and loving daughter would not just rush out on Christmas Eve and pick up a shirt and have the store wrap it and, you know, take it over there. A kind and loving daughter would put a little more thought than that into a gift, and uh, that's true. I can see that that's true. If there's one thing in the world I don't like to do, it's shop, and, uh, so I sat on my couch a while trying to 
you know, wait for inspiration to start. This man is hard to buy for if you loved him. I mean, you know, he really is. <laughs> and I just couldn't think of anything. I really couldn't. And I gave it a lot of thought. And finally, I, you know, it occurred to me, it's like everything else in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I, what I want to do is, um, it's like with character defects or anything, what I want to do is just pray and have God do it. You know, and it took me a long time to realize that, that if I pray and ask God, for example, to remove a character defect, there's something that I need to be doing also. I think of it as sort of the counteraction to whatever the defect is, you know. And, and so it occurred to me finally with this gift thing that um, probably my action involved here, because God was not having inspiration strike me, that my action probably was to go out into a store somewhere where uh, inspiration might be more likely to strike. <laughs> and so I got dressed and I went down to the mall and I'm walking around there and... Uh, and I wandered into this needlepoint shop, and there was this little thing on the, uh, like a little saying, you know, to needlepoint and frame and hang on the wall. And it was a little saying about fathers and daughters, just the most sickening, sweet. <laughs> um, I looked at it, and I thought, yes, that's a kind and loving daughter would do that. I'm not going to do it, but uh, <laughs> that's probably what they would want me to do. And I'm walking around the shop looking for something else, and this thing is like following me, you know. <laughs> So I bought it, and uh, needlepoint takes a long time. Those of you who do it, you know, a lot of hours went into this thing, and, uh, and I did my very nicest work. I, I never for a moment felt the emotion behind this little thing, but I did my nicest work, and I took it down and got it framed real nicely and wrapped it up and took it over there on Christmas Day, and there was a moment when we were opening our gifts when he opened that up and he got a little tear in the corner of his eye, and just for a split second I felt like I was doing the right thing. That feeling went away that fast. You know, but but it was real. Pa- it was a spiritual experience. Is what it was. It was real powerful. And and for just that split second, I knew I was doing the right thing. That I was somehow on the right track here. My feelings towards him had not changed, but I knew that I was doing the right thing. Um, that that feeling, that moment, uh, kept me going a long time. Kept me trying to think of new ways to 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 act like a kind and loving daughter, you know, and, and kept me talking to people and asking, what do you do for your parents and what do you do for your dad and, you know, and getting ideas and stuff. And a couple of years ago, he was in the hospital and I went down to visit him and we were chatting <laughs> and uh, they announced that visiting hours were over and I got up to leave and I bent over and I kissed him on the forehead and I said, goodbye, I love you. And I walked down the hall and punched the elevator and rode down to the first floor and walked out of this hospital. My car was way on the far end of this. It was nighttime, dark, and my car was way on the far end of this parking lot, and I walked out there, and I stuck my key in the door, and I realized what I'd set up there, and I couldn't believe it. I stood there, and I started to cry. I thought, this can't, it can't be, you know. It doesn't work that way, and yet it was true, you know. It, it happened. A day at a time, by acting like a kind and loving daughter, I had become a kind and loving daughter. That is phenomenal. These steps really work. I mean, this really made a believer out of me. Um, What I feel for him today is a lot of compassion. He he is a practicing alcoholic. He was when I was growing up. And and I really believe that he was doing the best he could. You know, I really do. Uh, I hope that he makes this program someday, but that's none of my business. You know, there's nothing I can do about that. I I do try to be a good example of Alcoholics Anonymous to him, and that is, uh, that's all I can do. Um, if you're new, I hope that you stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I think that uh, I can't believe the way that I live my life today. You know, I, we live in a, my husband and I live in a real nice house in Pasadena, and uh, our neighbors uh, respect us and, and seem to think that we're just regular folks, you know. Uh, <laughs> they only knew. <laughs> they only knew. We have, uh, we have a lot of AA parties at our house, and uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because... Uh, they show up, you know, 300 people show up, 
and they're parked, you know, for miles around, and they come, and there's a lot of noise, but nobody's rowdy or out of control, and it's just a lot of noise, and then, you know, they're all gone by meeting time, and um, and, and all the trash is picked up and in neat little bags, you know, and put in, the, and I mean, it's like there was never a party there when they're gone, you know, 20 minutes later, and, uh, and the neighbors just kind of look at all this, they can't believe it. Um, we live a real good life, you know. Um, most days I treat my husband with respect and kindness and courtesy, and I don't have to think about it most days, you know, because I learned how to do it here a day at a time just by doing it over and over and over again. That's kind of become part of who I am. I, I, not every day. I mean, I must be honest here, but um, it's just a lot easier than it used to be, you know. Uh, I am so grateful that I stayed in. I get chills sometimes when I think about how close I came to leaving so many times. You know, I, I almost didn't drive to that meeting a lot of nights, and I would have missed all of this. Uh, if you're new, I hope that you get a sponsor. If you do not have a sponsor here today, I, I urge you to get one before you leave this room today. Uh, I think I believe that it's the most important thing you can ever do for yourself. I am uh, very happy that I am here, and I want to thank the committee for having asked me. Thank you. Mm -hmm.